If you have a Bible or a device with Scripture on it, I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Often we have the text, usually we have the text printed in the bulletin. This morning it's a little too long to fit. So I'm going to give you a couple of moments here to rest your legs before we stand for the reading of God's Word. You would turn to Isaiah 44. I'm going to begin in just a few moments in verse 24, where we left off last week. Earlier in our service, we read from the Heidelberg Catechism, a great Reformed uh, um, profession of faith set in question and answer form. We read questions and answers 27 and 28. Those are found in a section that the context is, what do we believe concerning statements in the Apostles' Creed? Actually, if you go back one question to question 26 in the Heidelberg Catechism, you'd read this question, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? We use that creed often, the the Apostles' Creed, a great ancient creed of the church. I've been around for many, many, many centuries. Here's the answer to that question, expounding on what is it that we believe when we say that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Listen to this answer. We believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father, because of Christ His Son. I trust Him so much that I do not doubt He will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and He will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. It's Heidelberg Catechism question answer 26. I encourage you to look that back up. An incredible statement. I wonder when we affirm our faith in the Apostles' Creed saying we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, are we thinking of all of that? Are Are we thinking about, are we envisioning God in this way? Is our vision of God that large? as we just heard in that answer? Are we confident enough in God's fatherly love and care that it includes even trusting the adversity He sends our way? That that adversity even will be turned to our good. Today's passage confronts us with such a vision of God, such a revelation of the Almighty, and of his unexpected ways. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of Scripture this morning. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins." 
who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for prize or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall, fl- they shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the heaven and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. You have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save? Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth... 
For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. If you're a note taker, or even if you're not, and you have a pen, write down this sentence. This is the point. This is a very long passage, but this is where everything is going to be moving toward in this sermon as we look at this passage. This sentence, God directs all things, God directs all things toward His glory being revealed in the salvation of His people. God directs all things toward His glory being revealed in the salvation of his people. So if you have that sentence, we're just going to look at that kind of word by word, phrase by phrase, and look at this morning's passage and see, is this true of Scripture? Is this, is this what we're being told here in this sermon, really, of Isaiah as he declares God's word to the people? And just a reminder, just a reminder, Isaiah living in the eighth and 7th century BC, uh, declared to kings both in Israel but then primarily in Judah in the southern kingdom, God's word. He was a prophet of the living God. And we've looked at in the first 39 chapters how Isaiah is correcting those kings and the people in Judah who were tempted when faced with, with persecution or the threat of the Assyrian Empire especially, they were tempted to look to anything other and anyone other than God to save them. And over and over, God is reminding them, I am your Savior. I am the one who's called you and formed you. Look to me. Near the end of chapter 39, as, as Isaiah is prophesying about the future fall of Judah, we find there a verse where he says actually to King Hezekiah, who had pridefully shown off his possessions to foreign dignitaries, he said, surely everything you have and even your descendants are going to be carried away into Babylon. Hezekiah, maybe you remember, basically said, Whew, at least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. God promised that there is, there is discipline, there's judgment coming for my people even, who continue to refuse me. You're going to be taken captive into Babylon. Beginning then in chapter 40 of Isaiah, what we find is Isaiah speaking to the future generations of God's people who, are, who will be, from his perspective, in captivity. He's speaking words of comfort and hope to them. So what we find in this section is, is Isaiah speaking by God's by God's Spirit's leading and guiding, it's revealed to him these things, and he's speaking forward into the future, and he's speaking words of promise and hope and correction even here. So, let's look then at this statement. First, God 
As we consider God, I want to consider him as he is revealed here in Scripture. So, notice in verse, uh, in chapter 44, beginning in verse 24, who it is that's speaking. God reveals himself to his people as your redeemer. I'm the one who has redeemed you. In the Old Testament, this would be the next of kin, is the the kinsman redeemer who goes and saves those within the family, maybe who had been lost or whose property had been lost. God says, I am the one who will redeem you. Not only that, he's the one who formed you. I've called you and formed you to be a people, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and what God expresses in these verses here at the end of chapter 44 is his authority and his superiority. He says that not only am I your redeemer and your creator, but he goes on to say, I've actually am the one who created everything in earth and in heaven. All things that are seen and unseen, God says, I'm the one who formed those. But I don't stop there. I didn't just form this world and this in heavens and earth and then step away. Actually, he, he continues by saying, and actually, I'm the one who, who frustrates liars and diviners, and the wise in the world. God singles out, it would seem, all of those who, see, who pursue, and these are humans who pursue glory. They're hungry for glory, whether it's through, through their, their attempts to divine what is to come, or lying, or, or de- declaring themselves to be wise. God says, I will frustrate every one of them. I will thwart their plans. I'm going to foil them. God is active. He has authority and he is superior. He will also, he says, I'll confirm the words of my servant, maybe referring to Isaiah himself here. And then God does something remarkable. He says that I will fulfill the counsel of my messengers who say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Now, when Isaiah declared this, and wrote this down, Jerusalem was built. The temple still stood. And here is God saying, I will decree that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple raised. The ruins will not stay ruins. So he declares this even before the city is destroyed or the temple is destroyed. Imagine last Sunday, if someone walked up to you and said, I've got something to tell you. Before the week is out, one of the coaches who's coaching tomorrow night in the championship game is going to be your new head coach within a week. What would you say? A week ago, you'd have said, we already got a coach and we like him. We don't want another one. There's no coach to replace. Here God says to the people, I will rebuild Jerusalem. And they look around, they say, well, Jerusalem looks just fine to us. I will rebuild the temple. Now, if somebody had said that to you last Sunday, you'd have walked up to them today maybe and said, who do you know? (laughs) Who have you been talking to? Do you know a relative? Did somebody disclose this to you? But here is God announcing something that would happen. Not because he knew somebody on the inside, but because he would decree. He would decree that it would take place. God is sovereign. He sovereignly declares not only what, is, what has taken place in the past, but what will take place and how he will act in the future. Now, what we also find that this God who has authority and sovereignty and superiority, 
that God also directs all things. It's this very God who declares himself that I have authority and superiority. He then declares how he will direct things. And notice he drops a name here in verse 28. He says of Cyrus, he says of Cyrus, he he names Cyrus in particular and he calls him my shepherd. And Cyrus shall fulfill my purpose. And then in chapter 45, verse one, he says, he refers to Cyrus as his anointed If you continue in the first seven verses of chapter 45, what you find is God describing how he is going to use Cyrus to fulfill his purpose. But in doing so, it is God, God who will secure and ensure this Persian king's reign. Cyrus was the great king of Persia. Notice what God says in these verses. God says that he will, God himself will grasp and subdue. He will open doors. He will go before Cyrus. He will remove obstacles. He'll break doors of bronze. He'll cut through bars of irons. He will even give Cyrus hidden treasure. That's in verse two or verse three, excuse me. I'll give him the the treasures of darkness, the hordes in secret places, even people and kings who've who've hidden away treasures, Cyrus is gonna get it eventually. Now, God declares this 150 years before Cyrus's reign. Over a century before Cyrus is even born, God declares that this is exactly what will happen. He named Cyrus. This Persian king will know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one God who called him by name. God is recording it now so that Cyrus would know it later. It's believed by some that Daniel probably there in Babylonian captivity, maybe even shared with King Cyrus this very prophecy. Listen to what God had said 150 years before. But I want you to notice something at the ends of verses four and five, if you have it still open there. God says to Cyrus, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. And the second half of verse five, he says, I equip you, though you do not know me. Cyrus wasn't only a Persian king, he was a pagan king who didn't know God. God called a pagan king to do his bidding. He even referred to him using messianic designations like shepherd and anointed one. And God said, I will equip him. God equipped him and then did everything to ensure this pagan king's success. And sure enough, 150 years later, Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians And eventually, he had a kingdom that stretched from the Mediterranean all the way to the Himalayas. Exactly as God had said, he will raise him up and he will ensure his success. Now, for that to happen, kingdoms had to be conquered. Lives lost. Land had to be taken and people displaced. And God makes it clear that he is the one who does it. Listen to verses five and following. I am the Lord, there is no other. 
Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. How big is your vision of God? Do you see him perhaps as a kind and affirming cosmic life coach? Just always ready to give you just a little life advice and encouragement in hopes that you just won't give up. Do you envision God that way? Or maybe do you, do you think of God and when in your, in your mind's eye you consider him to be kind of gruff and stodgy, really a disciplinarian at heart who's ready to tell you when and where you mess up and then to kind of push you back onto the court of life with your bruises and scrapes, get back in there, toughen up, do better this time. Or maybe do you see God as a kind of passive, people-pleasing puppet? who knows he must act in ways that follow the desires of his followers or he may lose them. Or maybe you see him as just kind of a a well-intentioned and wishful benefactor whose plans and purposes ultimately rest on our ability to get things right. Or do you see him as sovereign? He himself determining and doing all things according to his will. If your vision of God isn't big enough to include his sovereignty over every circumstance in your life, then Isaiah 45 is going to make you very uncomfortable. It's unsettling. You mean God directs all things, not just the good things? You know, when when good things happen to us, maybe unexpectedly good things, somebody will say, oh, that was a God thing. Well, Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says, even the calamity is a God thing. He's sovereign in all things. God's sovereignty includes his works of providence. Look back at the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27. This is in your bulletin. We read it earlier. I think this is helpful as we consider this. This was the first of those two questions there on page five. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand." All things, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Can we believe that? Can we believe that when there's sunshine? Sure, but what about when it's, it's raining? I talked to somebody the other day before the storm came through. I was talking to a mother and uh, she said, we're supposed to have an outdoor wedding tomorrow. <laughs> there's gonna be 30 mile an hour winds and gusting rain. I don't know what to do. Do we trust him when our plans all get disrupted or maybe when we get the diagnosis that we didn't want to get or when we face poverty, the loss of job, career? Can we still say, I trust that all things come to me from his fatherly hand? 
That's what we're faced with here in Isaiah chapter 45. I can just imagine, though, the, the people of Judah in, in exile who've been waiting, will God deliver us? And now they, they read this word about Cyrus, and now they know who he's talking about. Wait, this is a Persian king. This is a pagan God. This isn't what we expected. We're your chosen people. Surely you're not going to use designations like shepherd and an anointed one for a pagan king. Surely that's not the way you're going to do this. Much like we can say, surely God, this is not your plan for my life. God responds to this. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. (laughs) A pot among earth and pots? That's like a pot saying to the potter, what are you making? You shouldn't make me this way. I should have handles. (laughs) I should be beautifully glazed, differently shaped for sure. Or one saying to a father, how dare you beget such a son or a mother with whom are you in labor? God says, don't you recognize and realize I am the one who's sovereign, I form. I have created you according to my purposes and my will. The God who is determined to accomplish his purposes will use the means he chooses to do so. So he reminds them here in verse Verses 11 through 13, he says, let me tell you, let me tell you, I am the one who will direct my children and provide for them. This is in the middle of verse 11. Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Are you going to tell me how I need to deliver my own children? He goes on to say in verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness. That is, God is saying, I've, I've raised up Cyrus and I've done so righteously. God has every right to raise up whoever he desires. I will make his ways level. He shall build my city. He will set my exiles free. Not even for price or reward. I won't even have to bribe him to do so. He will do so gladly, all on his own. If you turn to Ezra chapter 1, you can read what would happen 150 years or so later. Listen to Ezra chapter 1, where we have a record of the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who conquered the Babylonians. And listen to what he said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Cyrus would even tell other nations, and you got you to gotta fund it. <laughs> You've got to fund the rebuilding project. God did exactly as he promised he would do. So God directs all things. God directs all things, even pagan kings. What does he direct all things to? He directs all things toward his glory. His glory being revealed in the salvation of his people. Why does God do this? Why does God raise up a Persian king to to pave the way for his own people to return and that Persian king even conquering other nations to do so. It's way back in verse four, God says, it's for the sake of my servant Jacob and for Israel my chosen. It's for the sake of his people who he formed and redeemed and loved. 
Well, what is it that God ultimately wants for his people? Does he want for his people calamity and chaos? What is it that God God desires for his people to know and experience? That is found in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. What do you want in your life? Honestly, what do you want? If if we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, well, I would love a little more financial security. I would love to have more friends. I'd love to have better friends. I'd love to have, and you could fill in the blank with all kind of things that we answer, but do we pray, God, rain down on me righteousness? That's what God says he desires for us and for his people. How is it that God could rain down righteousness on sinful people? How is it that that sinful people in a fallen world could experience this, this prayer that God would let the heavens, the earth open and salvation and righteousness bear fruit in our lives? How could God do this? Well, we're gonna find out as we close in the last part of chapter 45, really beginning in verse 14 and following, God begins describing the ways in which he will save his people and what he provides for his people. For instance, in verse 17, you could read how Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, not temporary salvation, but something that's everlasting and eternal. Cyrus couldn't provide that. He goes on to say, even even though Isaiah says, you hide yourself from people, but then God responds. Look at verse 19. He said, I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I speak the truth. I've declared these things and you've heard them today right here in this room. God has declared, I do this and this is who I am. I'm a God who saves. I'm a God who desires to to rain down righteousness on my people. He even goes on to say, assemble yourselves. Have a convocation. Draw together, you survivors of the nation. This is verse 20. They have no knowledge, those who carry wooden idols around there. Pray to gods that can't save them. Declare and present your case. You, you have no hope and salvation and all those other things. But, he says, there's no hope in them, but I'm a righteous God and a Savior. I'm a righteous God and a Savior. How is it that we as sinful people can know the one who is a righteous God and a savior. Verse 22, he says, turn to me and be saved. It's, it's, we could translate that word repent. Just, just turn to me. Turn away from those things that you, that you are always tempted in and thinking can fill in that void in your life. Turn away from those things and just turn to me. R- repent of those and look to me in faith. Faith and repentance, they always go together. It's turning away from the other things we, we think will, will satisfy the longing of, that we have in our hearts of something eternal and lasting and we turn away from those temporal things and say, Lord, you have what I need. You are, you, you are who I need. God says, just turn to me and you'll be saved. Actually, who's this message to? Is this call, this offer just to the Israelites and to the people of Jacob? In bondage, he says, no, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. His his plans are much bigger than just 
the Israelites. His plans were always much bigger than just a small group of people. No, they were to be a kingdom of priests who then take the message to others just as he's called us as his church to now bear this message to the ends of the earth because his call goes out to all the earth. Turn to me and be saved. Come to me and know what I offer. It's salvation forevermore. For I'm God, he says, and there's no other. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. This is a word that goes out and it doesn't return, meaning it lands. It, it, it finds a birth in the hearts and the minds of people. What is that word? To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Maybe you have a footnote. That translation could be, and to me, every tongue shall confess to God. This gets quoted in the New Testament. Let me read to you that quotation. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, he describes Jesus Christ. In describing Jesus Christ, he says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says, this promise is fulfilled in the Son of God. How? How could God rain down righteousness on sinful people? How could God love and save and redeem guilty people? By sending a substitute by sending his own son to take on flesh, to live a righteous, perfect life that we didn't live, that we couldn't live, that we can't live, but then to die a sinner's death. That's how he did it. He sent a substitute to live in our place, to die in our place, who conquered death, who was raised to eternal life, who was raised and ascended to the Father's right hand, who intercedes for us now. And so when we turn to God the Father, we turn through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we have faith in Him, God sees us not in our filthy rags, but clothed with the righteousness of His Son. And so in Christ, He showers down upon His church his people, righteousness. So our standing before God is now not condemned, but justified. That's how this ends. Look at verse 24 and verse 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. Righteousness and strength are not in us, they are in the Lord. Our hope is in the righteousness of Christ, not our own. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. Those who are incensed against him, his enemies, they will bend the knee one day, and they will bend the knee in shame. But in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory 
Those who know him will bend the knee and worship. Today, though it may make us uncomfortable, we are confronted with the God of Scripture who does as he pleases in order to accomplish his will and his purpose using whatever means he desires. And as much as it may make us squirm in this passage, what we find is that the true and living God is exactly the God we need. And the only one who can give us assurance and real hope, regardless of the circumstances that we face in this life. Actually, it gives hope on the days when there's rain and wind, the diagnosis we didn't want. It gives us hope and assurance that all things are serving his purposes for the good of those who know him, the good of those who he loves even and have called according to his purpose. And for us, brothers and sisters, God directs all things toward his glory. That glory is revealed in the salvation of his people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this passage in Isaiah. I thank you that you're honest about who you are and how you work. I thank you that you're a God who is so much bigger than we are even tempted to imagine. Lord, that your sovereignty extends beyond what we would hope for ourselves because your plans for us are so much bigger than what our plans are for ourselves. I thank you that your plans for us, your purposes for us are salvation and justification and forgiveness in life, not just for today and tomorrow, but forevermore. And that you have secured those purposes in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to turn to you, to turn to him in faith and repentance, and not just once. We thank you that you call us to believe, but that you continue to call us to follow. So, Lord Jesus, even today, help us to continue to grow in faith as we look to Jesus, look to Christ as our hope, as our salvation, as our security, now and forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.